You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. My guest today is the Right Honorable Ben Wallace, Member of Parliament, who is the uh, Minister of State for Defense for the United Kingdom. Uh, Secretary Wallace has been an outspoken leader of the West's efforts to help Ukraine resist Russia's invasion. He recently described Russia's performance in the war as, and I'm quoting here, bad battle preparation, poor operational planning, inadequate equipment and support, and most importantly, corruption and the moral component. Secretary Wallace, thank you for joining us today for a conversation about Ukraine. Hello, hi. So let me begin by asking you to comment on what our Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, said in testimony on Tuesday. She spoke of the war in Ukraine as developing into a war of attrition. You said something a little different this week. Uh, You said that you thought that uh, Putin in the long run in this war has lost. And I want to ask you whether there's any difference of opinion an assessment between you and our chief of intelligence, Avril Haines. Well, what I was saying about Putin in the long run was actually caveated by saying whatever happens in the Ukrainian war, in the long run, Putin has lost because, you know, he started this uh, before he chose to invade. He started with a Russia of a certain size and reputation and position in the world. And whatever happens, you know, Russia is now lesser, not greater. Uh, his armed forces have been exposed as not being invincible. Uh, they are currently being worn out, uh, and it'll take years to get them back to where they were. He's predominantly isolated from the West. The, the level of sort of isolation from big and small countries in Europe and across the Atlantic, you know, United States, Canada, even places like Qatar and uh, South Korea and United uh, Australia have been very strident in, in their opposition. So he is more isolated, lesser country, uh, Russia now facing huge sanctions, punitive sanctions that aren't going to really go away anytime soon. So his economy is going to be lesser uh, and he is going to potentially spend the rest of his, you know, 10 years or however long he stays in power uh, as a a more diminished, a a leader of a more diminished country. And I think, uh, you know, the West should recognize that at one level he has already lost. On that long run, you just uh, described a 10-year horizon. Uh, Our Director of National Intelligence, uh, uh, Haynes, said Tuesday that we should be concerned about the mismatch between what Putin wants to do in Ukraine uh, and more broadly in Europe and his capabilities. And she said that she believed we were moving along toward a more unpredictable and potentially escalatory trajectory. I want to ask you whether you agree with that that assessment and more importantly, what you think the West should do if Putin does threaten to escalate. Well, I think what I would say is I do agree with that assessment, but what I would say is that started long ago. So before the Ukraine invasion, uh, Putin has been on a journey in the last 20 years and in the last five years, I think predominantly Uh, encouraged by his ability to fix his own elections and to make sure he is no longer uh, vulnerable. If you remember about 10, 15 years ago, he was always worried about color revolutions 
uh, and that how that would uh, infect or not affect, sorry, uh, afflict him. I think what he's now in a position where he, he can put that behind him and now he's focusing on his legacy. And I think he's been on that journey for some time. We, you know, I, I was the security minister in the United Kingdom when nerve agent was deployed in Salisbury. Uh, we've seen murders in, in Central Europe. We've seen all sorts of uh, up in the ante uh, by Russia. And I think, uh, so I'd just say he's been on a trajectory that has been escalatory even before he chose to invade uh, Ukraine. And I think one of the important factors in this is that you know, when we're all discussing what to do about this, uh, the opportunity cost of effectively not doing something, allowing him to be successful in Ukraine, uh, would see him on a on a continued trajectory that I think would would have then spilled over into his other areas of ambition, the Baltic states, which he basically claims is still Russia, and he has a claim over those people. Uh, his views about the ancient Rus people that you know that's a bit of Finland, that's a bit of even the Czech Republic. I think he would carry on that trajectory, taking a calculation that the West weren't prepared to stand up to him, and that his army really was as good as he thought it was. And I think that's why. Uh, you know, Crane has become the buffer for him, as in he's hit the buffers. Uh, and again, completely miscalculated. Actually, the international community has come together. I mean, it's been a great success. You'll, re you'll remember a few years ago, President Macron described NATO as a as brain dead. Well, that's been proved emphatically wrong. Uh, Putin definitely thought we're all weak. We don't really care for our values very much. I think what's been a, a really positive from this is, you know, the young people across the political divide in the United Kingdom and certainly in Europe, whether from the left or the right, they care about their values as much as our grandparents. And I think that's a really uh, a positive part that we've all learned is sort of, you know, as I'm a middle-aged lawmaker, as you call us, you know, to see that generation engaged. And I think uh, that's a big miscalculation that Putin is going to have to live with. Just to be clear, you said something that, that really caught my ear. You think if Putin isn't stopped in Ukraine, he will move on to the Baltic states, move on to other targets. Putin always sets out what his ambitions are. He, he's done it. We shouldn't be surprised. He, he, I think there is a question for the West about why did we not act on these things or not take it seriously. But, you know, he set out in the numerous speeches and essays his view about, uh, you know, his ambitions towards Ukraine. He did that in an essay most recently in July 2021. Uh, and in that, he evokes a far wider sort of ambition other than just Ukraine. I mean, he, he talks about the Baltics states. He talks about... Balkans and Finland and, and and in fact hardly mentions NATO in a, I think it's a 19 page essay he mentions NATO in one paragraph so uh, you know he, he is true to form uh, to be honest he, he you know many people uh, will say that Putin doesn't lie and I think at one level his strategic ambition hasn't changed and I think you know if he, he'd been successful he, if he'd proven to himself his calculations were correct that the Ukrainians did welcome him that he he could roll in his tanks and invade and then occupy Ukraine I think he would have got more encouragement from to himself about, well, you know, now it's my turn to really go after the Baltic states as well, because, you know, I'll be proved right that those Russian minorities in those states really want me. Uh, and uh, when I turn up, they'll be waving flags, not guns. Well, he got that spectacularly wrong in Ukraine. Uh, and that's why I think a lot of their plans have failed, because it was all based on this sort of arrogant assumption. Uh, when Putin and his lieutenants have raised the threat of using nuclear weapons. President Biden has typically responded by saying the United States does not seek a war with Russia. He's underlined our desire to avoid a direct conflict with Russia. 
uh, and to keep this uh, conflict contained within Ukraine. Do you think uh, that U.S. officials have made a mistake in overstressing that theme? No, I mean, I think one of the reasons the international community is united is we've been all very clear that, you know, this is about uh, helping Ukraine defend itself in accordance with international law. You know, it's got a perfect right to do that. Uh, and that this is about, you know, Putin effectively failing in his ambitions in Ukraine. We've been clear about that. We have not engaged and we won't be engaging in direct conflict with Russian uh, army or Russian state either. Uh, I was very clear in the build up to this invasion that, you know, whether we people like it or not, Ukraine was not in NATO when we were not therefore going to deploy troops uh, in, in on the ground in a combat uh, way at all. Um, so I think President Biden has been absolutely right on that. And we we are very careful, all of us in the international community, that we calibrate our lethal aid response uh, to make sure that, you know, those type of weapon systems we put on, put in, are predominantly tactical uh, and are there to really assist the Ukrainians achieve their goal of defending their own country. I think that's, that's quite an important uh, point for all of us. And every time we decide to, to respond to a Ukrainian request, we all of us, think about what that means in, in that sort of light about, is, is it escalatory, is it uh, st- tactical or is it strategic? Uh, and those are really important points to make sure that Russia fully understands what we're doing and why we're there. In that uh, context, uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, your colleague, uh, your armed forces minister serving under you, James Heapy, said two weeks ago, got a lot of attention uh, for saying this, that he thought it was completely legitimate for Ukraine to be targeting Russia in depth, that means inside Russia, in order to disrupt logistics, and that it was, again, I'm quoting him, not necessarily a problem if the Ukrainians used British weapons in such attacks. I want to ask you what your view is first about the appropriateness of Ukraine attacking inside Russia. Second, whether you think it's okay for them to use British weapons in doing that. Well, I think look, on the first point, you know, Article 51 of the United Nations allows a country to defend itself. Uh, uh, Ukraine is perfectly within its right to take action to defend itself from a invader such as Russia, who is illegally occupying and invading their country. That is international law. Part of that response in defending yourself is not only within your country, but obviously to take steps to weaken the army that is currently invading. So it would be perfectly logical uh, that you as a nation, if you wanted to do that, would have to do something about the supply chains that's feeding the Russian army. So I, I think, you know, no one should be surprised. It's, it's what we do as, as countries, you know, when when we're either aiding other countries around the world, if they ask for our assistance, uh, you know, it, it is not unheard of that countries will, uh, you know, attack their attacker by going further up the supply chain. And I think that's just military logic. Uh, otherwise, you know, you might not, you'll stop that, you know, if you don't stop the fuels getting to the Russian tanks or you don't stop uh, ammunition or, or, or whatever, then that Russian army can continue to to illegally act in that country. So I think that not not a surprise. Uh, the United Kingdom's weapons, uh, first of all, we haven't really given them weapons that probably could allow them to do that. We haven't given them helicopters or aircraft or, or very long range equipment. So it is unlikely British weapons could be used uh, across their border. But we are giving weapons to Ukraine in accordance with the sort of United Nations Article 51, allowing them to defend themselves. And if they used British weapons, French weapons, uh, German, any, any anybody's weapons to, to, to achieve that effect, as long as it's in accordance with international law and humanitarian law and Geneva Conventions, then of course, 
you know, th th that's something that that we 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 recognise as a low possibility because of the type of weapons we provided, but nevertheless a possibility uh, because that was the condition we gave it to the, the Ukrainians was to defend themselves. And and not necessarily a problem, as as your as your colleague Mr. Mr. Heapy said. So I want to ask you. You said that you think Putin will lose in the long run, but we have a bloody uh, war of attrition, uh, just brutal, as, as you know better than anyone, going on at, at present. Do you think there are things that the West can and should be doing to help Ukraine additionally now? Uh, in in coming uh, weeks, to to give them a better chance of driving Russian forces out of their country. What's what specific things do you think should be on the agenda in terms of military supplies? Well, what we what we've started doing is effectively shifting from hardware to software, insofar as training. Um, you know, it, when we started this, uh, and the United Kingdom and the United States were providing military, both lethal and non-lethal uh, types, into Ukraine before the invasion. Uh, but they were predominantly, you know, javelins and for us, NLAWs, short-range, anti-tank, sort of infantry-level uh, capabilities. Uh, and they are pretty much point and fire. They weren't particularly uh, complex weapon systems to use. As the international community has decided to step up support, so we've now got longer-range artillery, 155 or 152, which is the existing Soviet-type calibers, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different weapon system. They need to be more specialist. And so in order to allow them to be used properly uh, and to be used on the right targets, you need to make sure that people are trained. So actually, I think the next step is training uh, to make sure that the Ukrainians, uh, you know, it, it, it's, just not, it's not just a question of giving the Ukrainians complex weapon systems. They need to be able to operate them properly. Otherwise, you know, our constituents will quite rightly ask, you know, what are we doing it for? Uh, and I want to make sure that uh, the Ukrainians have that ability to do it properly, but also that they can make sure that, you know, there is no collateral damage and all the other challenges that we have in war. So I think that's the next big push is coordinating training to make sure all that weaponry that's been gifted or sold or whatever to the Ukrainians uh, is used properly to allow them to defend their nation. And what's your view on the question that's arisen over the last several months of giving Ukraine used uh, Soviet-era MiG uh, fighters that would give them a better chance to contest Russia's air supremacy over Ukraine? Well, I think that, that's been an example of where we've talked about calibration. I mean, it, it's been a quite a well-aired debate, you know, that, that you know, what, what would be beyond uh, you know, tactical or even, you know, sort of lower level strategy uh, that may or may not provoke a, a greater response uh, and is there an alternative way of delivering the same effect. So so what Ukraine were really after was the ability to uh, use at long range uh, ground attack. They needed to, uh, you know, the Russians offered out, outranged them at the time with their guns. And the Russians had more air. So how do you affect uh, Russian military forces uh, at range, and uh, you can do that. You know, the, the conventional way is attack helicopters and ground attack aircraft. But nowadays, you can do that with precision munitions, or you, we all see we can do it with armed UAVs. So there are lots of other ways to achieve the same effect that I think we all viewed was not as escalatory. Uh, however, you know, I think it, it, these are these are the type of airframes that should be considered if Russia seeks to escalate. Um, I don't think we're talking about the MiG-29s. They're an air-to-an-air -air 
aircraft. And I think what the Ukrainians really want is a ground attack capability. Uh, but I think it's it's absolutely the sort of weapon capability that we we take very seriously were we to go in that direction. But, um, you know, for Britain and America, we don't have Soviet or Russian equipment. So to just do that is is fairly impossible. Uh, I think the position we took in the United Kingdom was, look, we will, if a country does want to do that, we'll stand by them by backfilling or, you know, we'll just defend their right to do that. But that is their choice. That's a significant uh, uh, comment, I think, that you just made, that if Russia does escalate, one thing that the West, the United Kingdom included, would consider is providing uh, these aircraft, which so far uh, we've held back from providing. Um, well, so I want to... I, I just need to clarify that, David. We, we don't have any of aircraft that we could provide. So, so but, and, and what I'm trying to make a point about is what we've done already is that uh, you know, if President Putin does something escalatory, such as bombing civilian areas, as he did a few weeks ago, and start to destroy towns, I took the decision that the right type of response to that was to make it even harder for him to do his job in Ukraine. And that's why Britain took a decision to provide short-range anti-air defence, because it was, you bomb civilian areas, this is now going to be much harder for you to do uh, and we will use uh, a calibrated response. It wasn't long range, but nevertheless, it now makes it harder for him to fly in that area. And I think all the responses need to be calibrated. It doesn't necessarily mean, therefore, it would be fixed wing aircraft if he if he decided to escalate. But I think he should understand that if he escalates, there will be a response. Thank you for clarifying that. I have a couple of questions from uh, our viewers that I want to put to you. Uh, Nancy uh, from Canada asks, how seriously do you take Putin's nuclear saber rattling? Well, I think we, we should always take threats from President Putin seriously. I mean, he is, uh, you know, a individual who resorts to all sorts of uh, uses of weapons, as we saw, I use the example of nerve agent on the streets of Britain. Uh, but we obviously have ways to monitor readiness and the capabilities of the Russian nuclear arsenal in the same way they try and monitor ours. Uh, and uh, you know, we see what he said. Uh, he invokes it recently. He's invoked it a number of occasions, as has Foreign Minister Lavrov. But as yet, we don't see a real change in their posture. Uh, of course, we take it seriously. Uh, but I think he knows, because he often talks about it in speeches, that, uh, you know, NATO together, 13 nations, both conventionally and nuclear uh, capability, uh, are, are, you know, outmatches him. So I don't think he is are going to be picking a fight with nuclear weapons and 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 you know no one wants that and we are all very clear with him in, in that space um, but you know it's in the soviet doctrine it's in the russian doctrine tactical nuclear weapons they've always believed they can be used on a battlefield whereas you know many of us in the west think it's a sort of completely uh, odd thing to be doing you know nuclear weapons are strategic in, in my view by their very nature but it's always been in their doctrine Another audience question, Jim, also from Canada, asks, what do you think of Putin's end goal now? This, how does he end this without losing face? I think that's one of the hardest questions, because every time uh, you think he uh, could find a way to sort of claim the victory, he then goes and does something that makes it uh, even harder. You know, uh, threatening Finland and Sweden, as we've seen him do, I think only last week, I think they put up posters in Moscow of Swedes uh, either dressed as Nazis or comparing them to Nazis. I mean, 
you know, all that does is get the opposite effect of what he wants, which is less NATO. So uh, I think it's quite a hard to work out what is his off-ramp. And that's, you know, you'll hear lots of people talk about off-ramp. Uh, I, think, I think what he needs to understand is that, uh, you know, a lot of this is, is of his own making. Uh, and it's quite hard for us to sit here and tell the Ukrainians that they, you know, should have an off-ramp when they are the suffering at the hands of this aggression. Um, it is perfectly possible for him to stop, to try and seek some sort of victory in his own mind uh, and uh, come to a negotiation table with proper negotiation positions that respects the sovereignty of Ukraine. Uh, I think on the other side, to reassure your listeners, I think it's quite important that what the West does is not dictate to Ukraine how it chooses to exit uh, this war. You know, if, if the Ukrainians want to uh, come to table, make a deal, uh, that is entirely for the Ukrainian. We're, we're all doing this to help Ukraine, uh, as your clip opened uh, earlier said, to have the freedom to choose. What they do with that choice is actually a matter for Ukraine. And, you know, we shouldn't be dictating terms. I think our ambition uh, for Ukraine, and I think Russia will understand this, is to allow Ukraine to negotiate from a position of strength, not with a gun at their head. So, as you said, um, this war has not gone well for, for Putin in terms of his expectations. I'm curious what uh, evidence uh, your government has found of dissension within the ranks, within the Russian military, within Putin's inner circle. To put it bluntly, do you think uh, Defense Minister Shoigu or even Chief of Staff Gerasimov will end up being fall guys for these mistakes? or? other people will be sacked? I think a lot of people will be sacked. I think uh, um, if you look at history, uh, you know, the Russian armed forces are notorious uh, at turning in on themselves. Uh, plus, you've got the FSB and the SVR, the two sort of quote-unquote civilianized uh, intelligence agencies who will no doubt be looking to blame everybody else for it. And I think that is you know, one of the, the characteristics of, of this invasion is there is no candor upwards. There is no truth upwards. Uh, and uh, when you get a system that doesn't tell the truth, uh, it becomes, uh, you know, well, we, we see the mistakes that get made and the cost is the poor old soldier at the bottom who is ultimately turned into cannon fodder while people preserve their own sort of egos and, and office. And I think, I think that is very likely to happen and it, it has been happening we've we, we've seen in open media's reports about an fsb general i think being put under house arrest um we've seen you know other other signs we see the generals going to the front line which is a sure sign that um they can't actually get their soldiers to do as they want them to do and that's why there's been a high casualty rate so look the, the nature of, of history shows that the russian system or, or sometimes the soviet system will turn in on itself to you know any any regime that is run by fear always sees people, you know, look to their self-preservation uh, at, at the expense of someone next to them or in the office above them or below them. So I think uh, we're going to see more of that. Uh, who actually finally gets the blame, whether it's Grazimov or Shoigu, I suspect you'll be able to, you know, it'll be, it'll be more than a few will get blamed. So, so uh, you, uh, your government announced something significant this week in offering a security pact for Sweden and Finland on their way to what's expected to be their admission to NATO. I want to just clarify what that means. That sounds to me like you're offering in this transition period, a nuclear umbrella, if they should be attacked. Well, I, I, I think, you know, I met with my Swedish counterpart about six months ago and we talked about 
you know, the, the close links to Sweden and Britain. You know, Sweden is a is a big European country insofar as big in culture and presence and history. Britain, Sweden and Scandinavia are very close. And we have a, a 10 nation military sort of uh, grouping called the Joint Expeditionary Force, which is all the Nordic countries plus Holland and Britain. We exercise a lot together. We train together. Uh, and within that 10 were two non-native countries, Finland and Sweden. So this was actually not really originally to do with them joining NATO. It was a it was a recognition that as, as President Putin was getting more dangerous, uh, that Britain would would reassure people like Sweden and Finland that, you know, we are such deep in our history that it is inconceivable that we would not come to their aid should they be attacked, either sub-threshold with cyber or other issues or with militarily. Now, how would we respond? I'm not going to speculate our, our, our whole posture on nuclear deterrence is always deliberate ambiguity. That's how uh, Britain uh, does its uh, deterrence. But look, we, we would we would definitely come to the aid militarily if that was the right thing to do with the Swedes or the, you know, the Finns as well. Um, and, and because it's just inconceivable, we would. We have time for just two more questions. One, and I, this is you could talk for an hour about this, but I'd ask you to just give a short answer. General Petraeus uh, famously was asked uh, or asked, asked others in Iraq in April 2003 during the invasion, tell me how this ends. So I want to ask you that question about 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 Ukraine. How does this end? Does this end with with Putin uh, getting sacked? Does this end with basically a, a change of regime in Russia? Does it end with their military defeat? What's what's your quick uh, summary of how how this how this story ends? I, I wish I knew. I mean, you know, um, I, I think you could see two types of scenarios that that your viewers would would recognize. You can have a Korean ending where you have a frozen conflict. Uh, that lasts for another 50 years, where North and South Korea, as we see today, uh, you know, has been separate and effectively behind a wire for very many years and frozen. You also have the Vietnam conflict, which for different reasons saw an overwhelmingly large, technically advanced force uh, leave, uh, you know, have to have to give up its ambitions and its abilities uh, by the Vietnamese. And, and, you know, the United States, 15 years, as we know, the losses and the political appetite changed uh, and, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. So I think you've really got in some scenario, really two main scenarios is, is this going to become a, a Korean a frozen conflict or is it going to become a, a sort of Vietnam? And, and there's, there's a lot of similarities, you know, the United States didn't have home advantage, the Vietnamese population, well, Russia doesn't have a home advantage. Um, it doesn't, of course, Putin doesn't have the political sensitivities about seeming to care for his soldiers. So, you know, that's a that's a, that's a big difference. Uh, but I think what you could certainly see is a Russian army that is, and I think, uh, um, as was pointed out uh, by, uh, you know, the administration the other day, slowing down to some form of stalemate where the Russian army becomes exhausted or uh, you know, their equipment running out. I mean, we know they're running out of precision weapons. You, you know, you only have so many cruise missiles and once you've fired them all uh, and fired what you've got, you don't have many left. They take months, if not years, to replace. You start to run out of that. Those soldiers, people forget, they've been in the field for, for three months before they even went in to invade uh, with a, a group of soldiers not well prepared, not well trained, often without knowledge. Uh, I think, you know, you can get to a stage where the Russian army is just exhausted, worn out. Uh, and uh, President Putin has to come to some form of negotiation. I think that's why it's really important that Ukraine is in a position of strength. 
But you know, I don't know how it's going to end. Uh, I think the sadness of all of this, and there is a great sadness. You know, I don't like suffering, whether it's Russian or, or Ukrainians. You know, is that the from presidents to prime ministers, they warned Putin not to do this. They asked him not to do it. They implored him not to do it. They pointed out he'd get more NATO, not less. They pointed out lessons of history, and they didn't want to listen. And and you know, it's quite hard to save someone from themselves. So helpful answer. Let me ask a final question about about politics. And I'm going to cite my, my regular read, the Daily Express uh, in London. Daily Express headline f- four days ago, Boris, meaning your prime minister, Boris Johnson, will not be in charge. Defense Secretary Ben Wallace is the people's favorite to replace Boris Johnson as the new conservative leader and prime minister. They were citing a poll that Express had, had done. I want to ask you what you make of that polling, and if your colleagues in the Tory party selected you as party leader, would you serve? Uh, well, look, first of all, the first thing I know about that poll is what you read out. I'm so uninterested in in a pitch for leadership. I, I, I'm incredibly fortunate to do a job that I know something about that I love doing, and at a time there's nothing more important in keeping people strong and safe and our society and standing up for our values. I, I am one of the privileged people who gets to actually action our beliefs, which is to try and defend those people that can't be defended themselves and to stand up for us. And there's a lot of people out there who want to do more to help Ukraine. I, I get to do that. So uh, the idea that I would be interested in, in leadership, you know, I doubt it. I doubt I want to be prime minister, but I am a politician. So, you know, you can you can read that answer as you like. But fundamentally, I, you know, the prime minister has been an excellent prime minister to me. He's incredibly supportive. He allows me to be a defense secretary. Uh, and run the department and you know when you become a secretary of state that's you couldn't really wish for any more so uh, i'm not gonna, i'm not gonna i'm not even interested i'm i'm interested in delivering defense so i want to thank uh secretary of state for defense uh, ben wallace for a fascinating conversation about about ukraine a little bit of politics here at the end thank you so much for joining us i hope you come back thank you david thank you thanks for listening For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.